Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. In today's episode, we're thrilled to introduce our guest, Kevin Pogany, as the current Chief Technology Officer of the Commercial Group and Data Platform at EagleView. Kevin heads the engineering organization, directing platform and product development across the construction, utilities, and solar division. With a career spanning almost 30 years, Kevin has emerged as a thought leader in the realm of technology and product development. He has an impressive track record of guiding organizations toward digital disruption within traditional sectors through the power of data-driven business model evolution. Kevin's experience also extends into indirect cross-organizational program leadership, and he's known for his knack of turning complex corporate strategies into streamlined operational execution. From budding high-growth startups to prominent tech firms and Fortune 500 organizations, Kevin has left an indelible mark across a myriad of industries. Today, we're excited to dive into his insights and understand the mechanics of his innovative approach. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Honored to be here, actually. Awesome. So, Kevin, if you don't mind, please share with our listeners a little bit more about Eagle View. Sure, Patrick. Uh, again, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and, and chat a little bit about uh, some of the topics that I think are interesting to me and some of the growth uh, that I've, I've been fortunate to be a part of here over the last sort of three decades in, in tech and, and sort of product evolutions. You know, Eagle View, which by the way, is my ninth industry, which may seem amazing to some, is an aerial imagery company. It's been around um, in sort of parts and pieces for better part of 20 years. In fact, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary of the uh, the sort of portion of Eagle View, which captures imagery using airplanes and custom-made cameras that capture high-resolution photography down to an inch resolution or, you know, ground, uh, the, what we call GSD. So you can basically see an object on the ground that is larger than an inch pretty clearly. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. There's a lot of innovation in this space and there has been for a long time. Satellites are are actually getting close to that sort of magic six inch GSD today. Most of them are 30 centimeter. So aerial imagery still plays a very important role in supporting governments and assessors offices and E911 environments. And then we actually take that imagery and do a lot of derivative work from it. So some of it through traditional sort of operations means like people physically taking that imagery and bring it into tools and sort of doing something we call a photogrammetry, which effectively creates a 3D position through multiple captures of imagery. We capture imagery at both an ortho or a nadir level, and we capture it at what we call an oblique angle, about 45 degrees. And so when you fly the same sort of spot on the ground from different angles and over repetitive different lines, you can triangulate that because you have very precise knowledge of where the camera is, very precise knowledge of where you're focused on the ground. We use some very high-end GPS equipment, locational inertial guidance and inertial uh, navigation units to tell us exactly where everything is. And when you put all that together, you can actually get a very precise measurement of what you see in multiple different types of images that were captured of the exact same item. So an example of an area we spend a lot of time on is producing essentially measurements of buildings and structures, roofs. 
And so we end up having the ability effectively to produce effect roof reports for the entire roofing industry when an insurance claim is made. We have large partnerships with all of the major insurers and they leverage us to effectively uh, produce, help them adjudicate claims. Uh, we also now have recently gotten into the drone business. And so now we've now integrated a localized drone flights with fully automated sort of house scan drone capabilities that we ultimately are now using machine learning to detect the anomalies in roofs. So if you have a hailstorm, what we'll end up being able to do is we'll equip a, a roofing contractor or an insurance adjuster with a drone. A drone will automatically go figure out how to fly the entire roof and effectively bring that imagery back to, to us. And we will identify where all of things like a hail strike damaged a shingle, for example. So the industry is all moving in that direction, and that's a great evolution on, and merging of technologies, right? So drones, and they've been capturing imagery for a long time, but the autonomous sort of navigation that the drone actually now has, that's really what enables us to do it, to do it accurately. Believe it or not, people might find this interesting. Our imagery and location of imagery is actually more accurate from an airplane flying 8,000 feet in the air than a drone flying 20 feet above your house. And it's strictly because the grade of GPS and actual locational accuracy when you have massive location, essentially tracking and calculation devices versus what's tiny in a little drone is pretty amazing. So a lot of people, it's, it's kind of inverted to what people think, which was revelating to me. I spent time in ag as well. And it's amazing how inaccurate things like GPS are without all kinds of additional supporting capabilities. So when you think about what we do at Eagle View and what, frankly, our competitors even have to do or satellites are doing, the amount of, let's call it math, and the amount of computation that goes into accurately suggesting where things are on the ground, which in our business is, is we're all about that, is pretty phenomenal. It's a, it's a very, very complex process. And the amount of things that have to be considered that most people would never think about in a high-precision imagery game have to be considered. It's pretty fascinating. And I'm learning a lot about it as I do in most of my gigs, but there's a, there's an incredible amount of consideration, things like that you wouldn't imagine, like the gravity effect of moving water through the tides actually affects elevations, depending where you are, when you actually capture those things and where they are, plates move. For instance, Australia moves three inches a year to the north. So if all of a sudden you have what is a reference point that you thought was the physical reference point a year ago, well, if you're capturing one inch imagery and all of a sudden the whole continent shifts three inches, well, when you go capture the imagery the next time, when you go and overlay, let's say a boundary for a roof, it might be up to two inches to three inches off. Mm. That seems odd, but it's a, nobody ever thinks of these things, but these are really some of the great challenges. And one of the reasons I, I've kind of stayed in sort of focused on these types of challenges, it's just, they're just fascinating. And in the detail level, they're incredibly complex and help you understand why there aren't thousands of companies that are able to do these things. That's amazing. I'm just curious, do you have teams that are just focused on innovation or how does that work in-house? Yeah, we, we have a strategic R&D team in-house and that team, it consists of some extremely knowledgeable and, you know, multi-decade experienced folks that are very much in the domain of imagery capture and then imagery processing. We also have a 
fairly robust research and development program around the AI space, everything from computer vision techniques to what you typically would hear in machine learning ML to do the the kind of work that occurs in most companies that work with imagery. And that's that's going on everywhere. So whether you're a content producer like we are, or you are a, a content consumer of imagery, satellite or other aerial companies, or even our own imagery, that derivative space is actually where the big opportunities obviously are. And that's been going on for a long, long time, right? So if you've heard of the digital twin, the big focus of a lot of companies today is how do you produce that digital twin? And even when I was back working in Navtech, which is now here maps, you know, that was a, you know, we acquired a company that was doing that and doing it in, you know, large scale urban settings so that, that we could reflect uh, effectively a three-dimensional view of a drive through, like an expressway through a downtown city. And you could see what the buildings kind of were. So you got referential guidance, which mm-hmm. is a mechanism for common guidance in a lot of places throughout the world turn left at the, you know, the building with the dome on it as an example, right? Well, if you don't, if you can add that into your guidance system, there's a lot of value there for for navigation as an example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people for many, many years have been looking to create these kinds of 3D representations of the world. And I, I actually think that's one of the big, big evolutions. And you saw what Apple just announced, or if you didn't, I'm sure most of your listeners will have, you know, at their conference about the, you know, the emerging sort of, VR sort of capabilities that they're now producing hardware around. I mean, this is all part of that ecosystem, right? What Meta has been doing. So there's a lot of applications. I mean, there's gaming applications, but there's a lot of applications for what this looks like. And so the innovation to get back to that is really about how do we create those assets and create them infinitely more accurately and represent them in a sort of a graphical way that is super ultra realistic. And so when you capture things like one inch imagery or perhaps a drone at at, at millimeter resolution, you're actually able to produce what effectively is a lifelike representation of the real world. And then if you can do it frequently, which is the other area of innovation, if you can do it frequently enough, you can actually represent the real world as it's changing, Mm. which is probably a 10 X or order of magnitude greater value to those who want access to use those derivatives, right? Because the change is almost always where as a data guy, you know, change is almost always where the value is, right? So that's, you know, a slightly longer answer to your question, but, you know, we don't have, you know, innovation is a weird word. Um, You know, everybody generally is innovative in the space if they're truly in the engineering space, because you're almost always trying to solve hard problems. You're not just coming in and making donuts. So innovation and structured innovation, we have both. So all of our teams engage in, in sort of innovative thought as part of a large scale planning effort that we go through every 10 to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of our planning process. And then we execute, you know, in the following 10 to 12 weeks. And then of course we have a larger scale annual planning process where we identify areas of innovation and areas of focus at a corporate level which is driven by uh, a strategic framework that uh, Eagleview uses, uh, which is a, it's a really powerful framework. And uh, it's one of the best ones I've seen. I don't know how much I can talk about it here, but it is a, it is a great operating model. And again, one of the better ones I've actually seen uh, in my history, both big and small company alike. So very impressive. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, there's, there's, it's a, everybody's learning all the time in our space and it's evolving very, very quickly. So reacting to that, both customer opportunity as well as competitive pressure 
as you might imagine. It, you know, you got we're being pressured from the satellites above, from competitors in the sky, and from the little guys flying around everywhere called drones. So it's just as competitive as any other industry that I've ever been in, um, maybe more so. Well, um, I'm a member of Civil Air Patrol. I don't know if you're familiar with them, uh, but they get taxed by uh, different organizations to fly over things to take pictures. And there's a there's a big push in that group to move to drones from a cost-effective standpoint. I don't think they need anywhere near the uh, accuracy. It's more of like take a picture of this dam or then right, like uh, anything anything too serious. But it's it's interesting uh, those transitions that you're, you're you're talking about are like moving from these various environments always seem to cause a lot of disruption with the status quo. And you mentioned that this is your ninth industry, and I know you've yeah. seen quite a bit of disruption. Do you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit of a little bit more about your background and, and some of the more interesting places you've been before you get to to Eagle View? Yeah, certainly. I kind of went to school and and spent time working on what I thought would be my dream, which is to do manufacturing with robots. And so I was very lucky to attend an institution that was probably the number one uh, degree granting program at the PhD level in, in robotics for your listeners. That That's Carnegie Mellon. And they're well known for a lot of other things today. But what they were really well known for in the mid 90s was their robotics program. In fact, they sent uh, robots and outer space and and it was slated to actually send one to the to the moon, which several of my colleagues worked on when I was there. Some of uh, my friends as well. A number of them actually went into the research field in robotics. So I spent a lot of time in labs, and I really developed a love for for manufacturing and you know how robots, you know, and and how we could automate uh, repetitive human, you know. Um, sort of activities so that humans could go do something obviously a little more valuable than bending the same piece of sheet metal to 90 degrees with a press break. And so it kind of got a chance to exercise really a lot of what I was lucky. I mean, I think I'm, I consider myself lucky because I have my own children that are kind of, one is in college now and, you know, it's super hard to chase the exact dream you think you've had. First of all, you got to have the dream. Second of all, you got to be able to get into an institution where you can exercise it. And so I was back then, it was very, very hard. There's no internet. You, you're kind of doing a lot of research. And so I was always that person that sort of sought out these very interesting, I think, challenging opportunities to really, I, I kind of came from the, I don't know how, but I came to a belief that my whole purpose in being on this earth from a working perspective was to help others uh, not do the same thing again and again. And I think that's partly because I don't like to do that. Um, I tend to get bored quick. And anybody who I've worked for who's managed me kind of knows that for better or for worse. That's part of one of the, the drives to maybe why I've been at nine industries and more importantly, nine completely different jobs as part of that. Not this wasn't in consulting. These were physical, you know, jobs. I only spent a year and a half really in the consulting world. And that was just with one client. So in the end, you know, the career has progressed largely pursuing that goal. How do I keep from becoming bored? Which is somewhat self-centered, but it's just that's who you are. And you know what you discover what that is over time. And then the other was really, what can I do? How can I apply what I've learned and a lot of the passion and the energy, what I think gives me sort of both, both pleasure and satisfaction and a sense of success? How do I go help produce things that really 
allow us to be more effective, more efficient in what we do so that we have, frankly, more time to go do the things we really want to do and not the things that we just like making donuts. Like we don't we just don't want to do that. I mean, I'm not suggesting that's true for everyone. I'm 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 maybe a little biased in the in the cohort of people that I'm referring to, but I would argue most people generally would rather even sit around on the couch and watch TV or go watch a sporting event or read a book or play a video game or do whatever rather than just filling out the new, you know, the form and the report endlessly. Like it, yes, it's a job. Yes, you have to do it to make money, but it's not something you really enjoy doing. So, Kevin, I'm curious, when do you think you came to that awareness that uh, that that's the environments that, that you needed to to seek out? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Like Wendy's experience and looking, you know, the, the hindsight is 2020. Obviously, the foresight is, is very difficult to just sort of know that uh, that reason I've become far more psychological in my assessment of myself of organizations, of teams in my sort of last maybe 10 years. And, and they're also, I've worked for a few people who've helped me exercise that, that sort of view and that introspection to sort of start to draw some of those patterns and conclusions. And I'm a, I'm a patterns guy, so it fit pretty well for me. But I kind of figured out very early on in my life, probably 13 or 14 years old, when I was started writing code to automate my dad's pharmacies, you know, filings with the state public aid department where you literally had to type in every single prescription that was written into a, and they were using like old IBM computers at that time and they had to type it all in. And so if the same patient came back four times, like they'd have to do it four times. So I started building some software to automatically collect it once and, you know, way, way back. This was like in the eighties, like on a Commodore 64. Um, so I think I figured out that a couple things and I'll, I'll delve a little bit deeper into some of the the other drivers. I mean, I also associated the work that I started doing and the way I started doing it with earning an income. To be fair, I, I in my first probably 15 to 20 years, really pursued a lot of what I did. Number one, because I really enjoyed it and I got a great kick out of doing it. And it, and it really satisfied my kind of both curiosity and, and desire to want to continue to do new things and solve these very sort of hard problems for the benefit of a lot of other people. But I, I really enjoyed the fact that it came with a paycheck. And so I started it at an early age before I even went to college and I got a paycheck and it, it was like, oh, I can make money, you know, and do these really very cool, very exciting things. And I think that sort of doubly reinforced why, you know, I kind of continued to pursue that journey. And in fact, when I started at United Technologies, I started an AI when I graduated uh, from Carnegie Mellon, I actually got a job doing something I had done research on at Carnegie Mellon. I was probably one of maybe one undergraduate that worked on a wire harness robot. And it just so happens they were trying to automate the creation of wire harnesses in United Technologies at the time in Detroit. They're trying to automate the routing of wire harnesses through cars like a Ford Explorer, all the wires that you guys see. I'm trying to automate that using Lisp and a and a, what we call the, the knowledge-based engineering capability set that ran on things like SGI machines, right? $50,000. So imagine coming out of school, you're an undergrad, you sit down in front of a $50,000 workstation and you're trying to write Lisp to, to sort of unpack a 3D CATIA model to try and automatically run rules-based engines, which by the way is what we are doing today <laughs> in AI back in 1993. Wow. Uh, needless to say, they shut the program down in two years. And why? It just wasn't ready. The technology was not ready. 
and it required infinite more power to do effectively and a whole lot of experience and how this really works uh, to, to really do it well. So great example of where, say, a company goes off, makes an investment and very kind of, I would say, in its in the overall time span, it relatively quickly says, hey, this was a great experiment. Maybe not, not yet, right? Maybe we ought to focus on some other things that are a little bit more realistic and can work us towards that objective and goal of full automation in steps rather than trying to go after the whole, you know, enchilada from, from day one and, you know, credit to the, to the company. And it actually taught me a whole lot of lessons. Right. And I've, I've used those experiences to, we talk about innovation. I've used those experiences throughout my career to really pull back on aspirational journeys and really focus on sort of what's a realistic journey. What is the realistic set of steps that, you know, we should go and really invest money in to try and move forward. While we still want to chase some of our aspirational dreams, we still want to be sort of some, do some native core research and spend some dollars there. We certainly don't want to plan, you know, revenue projections on aspirational outcomes. Um, that's that's one of the big lessons that I've learned. Now that may, <laughs> that may not be as popular as some of our startup community, but in the end, um, even startups and those who fund them have to, sort of measure what's aspirational and what's real. And so outside of academics and outside of very, very specific, let's call them R&D centers and large-scale companies, which I've not typically been you know, engaged with, you really begin to understand you can make great achievements through innovative ideas and innovative concepts. And you can even do a little invention along the way, but you got to be careful that that's aligned with continuing to fund Right and continuing to generate, you know, revenues at reasonable costs for the organization that effectively is funding you, and so that's kind of been where I've sat most of my career. Almost every one of the roles that I've taken in my career have been in that type of space. Most people have asked me to join their organizations, generally in leadership roles, to to lead those specific areas. When I joined in uh, the Cars.com organization. I actually joined Classified Ventures, which was the parent company for those of you in Chicago uh, that, that have been, you know, familiar with how that sort of started. They they were uh, it was it was the biggest thing going at the time, and it was bringing classified advertising effectively to the web for used cars and eventually new for apartments for real estate. And we even had an auction site. Believe it or not, people probably don't remember that, but we still do auctions.com domain, and they were famous for Beanie Babies, by the way. So. I joined that organization really to go build the next generation architecture with a very, very dear close friend of mine who's now a CTO of a startup still in the Chicago market. And it was really about transform. That was my real, I would say, transformative journey to me discovering I was a, a data guy in quotes, right? So that that was that was where I began to very quickly realize, wow, there's a million people a day, right, telling me what they're interested in. That's got to be worth something. And sure enough, and this was back in 1999 and 2000. And I, I remember having, uh, I won't name names, but I remember having a, a pretty significant uh, philosophical battle on technology architecture with another gentleman who who, who also is, to, even today, is, you know, it certainly is, or he was a, a C-level guy and became one about the approach we should take to sort of capturing and storing all that information. 
And um, although I'll say I won, I'm not saying it because I was trying to win, but you know that was really the beginning of large scale, what we call large scale, both big data and data warehousing. We were right. And just prior to that, I had done some work with Pricewaterhouse, learned an awful lot about sort of at scale enterprise data warehouses and, and um, the type of, of architectures and technologies and let's call it databases that you use to sort of help you with large scale data. And in particular, putting data together and allowing people to effectively generate analytics. And so it was sort of that early business intelligence. That was the kind of business intelligence craze in the, let's call it the late 90s and early 2000s. And that really, that I would say was one of the two, maybe or three transformative journeys that I had been on in my career. I mean, there were a couple of them, but that that one was certainly one of the most influential it got me really thinking about, wow, the power of information and more importantly, the power of people effectively giving you that information because of some value you're turning back. Today, I didn't know this at the time because it had the term had not been coined, but today that's called the data flywheel effect. And later in my journey, we, we used it to an, an amazing level. Yeah, I mean, we'll get there eventually, but the the concept of how you get people to give you data, you give them value in return, and they continue to give you either that same data or more data, and then you expand that audience. That's the formula for every, effectively, every social media company that's effectively out there. At the time, there was no social media. Uh, Google hadn't even started yet. And so we were really in that, we didn't know it yet, but we had built Google Analytics for the organization in a very advanced way before Google Analytics ever existed. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of invention and innovation, I mean, every opportunity that I think I've had in my career has given me this opportunity to kind of really take technology, push it to its limits, not try to go beyond and, and try to extend it to what it can't do, but leverage it in ways most people would never have to, you know, an opportunity to leverage it, figure that out and being on that cutting edge and ultimately succeeding to create what effectively is a revenue opportunity, either through the creation of a large-scale data asset that could be monetized in many, many ways, some of which you had no, most of which you, you didn't have any understanding of when you were kind of getting that data, but knew that if you had it, you would ultimately, at some point in time, end up being able to go back in that sort of history of data and pull out some very interesting nuggets. And you start looking at the patterns that I'm talking about, you think about what machine learning does today, what we were trying to do by hand is exactly what the AI world has now gone ahead and made effectively much easier to do by letting the machines go and figure out those patterns rather than algorithms you had to build and specific analysts had to go and run around and use Excel and Tableau and business objects and all those other type tools to go figure out what those patterns were. So when I take a step back and look at sort of the things that we did and take a look at, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate to have just really kind of randomly dropped into a couple of areas where I just happened to have had access to sort of data and had access to, fortunately, a really kind of forward-looking, forward-thinking group of, of folks that I was able to work with that gave us a little bit of latitude and, frankly, a whole bunch of money to go off and and, and do this. And, uh, and yeah, that's when, you know, a disk array of maybe a couple of terabytes cost a half a million bucks. And a server cost a half a million bucks. And that was 25 years ago. I mean, that's that's a lot of today, that's a lot of money. So there was an actual belief and and a, and a real and honest to goodness um belief that 
the things that we were starting to sort of elaborate and we were starting to show ultimately was going to become a very, very big deal and a key differentiator to those who had that data versus those who did not. And I often called it moving from assumptions to facts. So you did, basically what you were doing is you were providing instead of a, an advertiser saying, oh, I didn't get any value. You're like, hang on a minute. Let me show you the value. Not only could we show the value, but you could create a story around that value, which means you created effectively a customer for life, assuming the story was good. And if the story was bad, you would be able to adjudicate that through a refund or some, you'd be able to have the right conversation with that customer because you used real data. And so that to me was a fascinating evolution. And, and I think that's really where the switch in my head sort of went off to say, that's actually how I think I can add and, and how I'm personally interested in adding value to the world. And I stayed away from social media. I didn't, I didn't go run off to the social media companies. Uh, I, I really focused more on industries and on disrupting industries through the use of data, either they were generating or that their customers were giving them. I, I worked at Baxter for a year and a half. We did something similar on the quality game. And then we went to, I went to moved to, to Navtech, here Maps. I, I reunited with a, a very good, this very good friend of mine uh, from, from the cars.com days. And when we were at Navtech, now here Maps, people know it as here Maps today. We affect what I effectively was able to get into was what we called sort of the next generation product development group. So we were taking an innovation lab. They had an actual R&D team and we were taking that innovation from the lab and we were turning them into actual, we were turning them into, into actual products. So we were effectively hardening what somebody had done on the back of a napkin and did a prototype and turning it into a real actual sort of product that could be marketed at scale. That was actually one of my first experiences, sort of recognizing that going from a lab and a group of people that are super bright, intelligent, and have a lot of great ideas to get it to work in an audience, which for instance, is using your, your products to get from point A to point B as a matter of like absolutes must work all the time. You don't just roll that into production. You effectively have to make sure that that's going to work and it's going to fit into everything else that's out there. And so for someone like myself, that was sort of journey and understanding, which helped me elevate what, what I consider to be the, the, my more of my engineering sort of mental model. How do you, what, what do engineers do well? What, what do we need to think about? And given the company size and maturity and market penetration and importance of their products to their customers, there's no like, shoot that aim. Like it, that doesn't work, uh, especially when you're going to deploy, for instance, a map on everybody's vehicle, which at the time Navtech was doing. Like a nav system in your car was almost exclusively coming from Navtech. If you mess that up, that might be a problem, right? Kevin, I've, I've, I've got a question. Like, I really love where you're going with this. I think one of the concepts that I'm pulling out of this, and I think it, it touches on what I think is critical for the future of like how businesses are going to grow. Because I think you've seen the successful businesses, how they've grown. You've got great background with that. I hear data-driven decisioning, right? I hear constant experimentation, right? That seems to be a, a couple of threads out of this conversation that is there, is there something that our listeners could learn from you about how you keep, is there a way you can encourage that at the organization that you're at focusing on not just anecdotal, right? <laughs> like to your point of like, uh, yeah, You know, it, it can't, you know, we don't have time for it to be okay. Or more importantly, it's like, we need to be more data-driven. Um, 
what would an organization do that if they don't have this type of capacity to, to be data driven, not because they don't have data, let's make the assumption that they do have a pretty good background or history of data somewhere, mm-hmm. but they just don't know how to leverage that asset. Yeah, I think there's two different perspectives to this conversation, right? So, or, or that's this topic, right? One is more of a, let's call it a more traditional IT view, which is I'm generating a lot of data, say, from my own operations or from my own sales teams, or, you know, basically I don't sell in the technology world. I don't, I don't, I'm not, my, my native product is not a data product or, an, or a, a large scale SaaS application or, or a, something in the software space. But my products are physical products in any number of industries, right? And I think for a long time, larger scale companies have figured out that that the data side of what they generate internally is the key. And I worked in several roles where in both logistics, I worked in in pharmaceutical where the key was get all that data as much as you possibly can, no matter how small or minute, organize it, structure it, and then ultimately start to draw decisions from it. I don't necessarily think that. Most companies need to be convinced to do that. I think the will to get started and the breadth with which you want to start is probably where certain companies can get off the rails, especially if they're tending to do that with, let's say, high dollar consultants or really engaging without experts on site. So what I would tell you is I was always the expert on site whenever we used, say, third parties to come in and help us do that, because inevitably it takes a large number of people, usually depending on the size of the business to do it, or you need skills you don't natively have. So I think one of the things you got to have a visionary on site, especially if you're going to do it internally, you have to somebody who's probably done it before. And the way you get this started is you really start to look at what, what is that data in the company that they are generating? What are the decisions that they're making now already? What biases are they likely kind of, you know, ultimately making decisions against? Are you sure you're having your complete picture of the data from end to end and not just a small piece? Because what you discover is, this, you hear about this in the law of constraints. You'll hear about it in any number of, of folks that talk about or opine on the value of data. The data tells you a story. And so you can also take the data and manipulate the data to tell you anything you want. And so you got to make sure you understand, get the data from end to end and make sure that you're making a decision based on the breadth of that data and not just a micro decision, unless you're intending to do that on a very small piece of that data. That's on the internal side. And yeah, sometimes it means you're going to invest. And I, I have several sort of examples where you're going to invest, actually go generate that data, meaning you're going to create explicit applications or you're going to make specific hops and jumps through existing apps or enterprise software just to gather the data or just to create a checkpoint that you know you are at so that you can compartmentalize that data and you know exactly where along that stream you are at. And that allows you to get from the very end-to-end now to the micro-optimization, but you're doing it with you know, overall understanding of those laws of constraints, like micro-optimizing a small process in your business just for that process in today's world, connected, largely has an impact on everything else. And so that, that's kind of where you can get in trouble today. In the past, you didn't have any data. So you at least started with something small, and then you, were, you would go ahead and, and you'd ultimately sort of build out from there. And eventually you get to that realization that, oh gosh, what we did here is optimal has created 2x the work downstream. Or, you know, if we had only known that we could have solved this problem we solved four steps down in the process, way up top, if we just would have captured that there 
I wouldn't have created 14 processes down here to go get it here or to deal with all the uncertainty that was created. So it's really more about looking at process, especially when you're talking about internals, you're looking at the processes, you're looking at how do those processes spin off data, and then you're kind of using the data to go and sort of re-energize and rework that process simply because you know now, and you can effectively even redo entire processes from scratch. I'm doing that right now in EagleView because we're reworking a process that's 10 years old. And we're, you know, we are actually physically reworking how we do what we do. Why? Because the technology has changed. The inputs have changed. The way we process things has changed. The cloud has changed a lot. So you have a lot of new things. When we talk about data companies, we talk about what I really sort of have been spending like the last maybe 15 years of my career focused on. You know, I'm a firm believer in a company that, say, produces data as its product or produces an outcome that's tied to data or content that you produce or that you transform, meaning you take content from somebody else, uh, feed from a social media company, you get our imagery, you take whatever, uh, some data provider gives you data, could be market data and other things. If you turn that around and then reproduce a value added product, the interaction of that that value-added product with the people consuming it. However, that's done, assuming you're not just a fire and forget, you know, data company, if you're building an interactive experience where you're expecting people to come in and leverage what you produce and then use that in line with their processes, which is very much what we're looking at to try to do here with Eagle View, which is it's really sort of old school in the way they deal with our customers, is largely a fire and forget model today. What we're really trying to do and the way you really focus on getting an organization to rally around this sort of notion that the data and you effectively being that purveyor of that data, that marketplace or clearinghouse for that data, that's what you actually have to do today. So in order to make the investments, if you're in the engineering and, and really in a technology business and a technology space and your business is making money off the technology, the data that you actually sell... There's multiple business models you can use, but by far, by far, the most profitable and largely the most, I would say, modern view of that today is by somehow putting a moat around content you own that virtually nobody else does, or you doing something to data that you acquire that virtually nobody else can, whether that's through content protection of of acquisition, whether that's through IP or whether that's just through trade secret and just knowledge and invention or reach because of an existing customer uh, you know, base you have, the concept is how do you now transition from what has might have been an older school model of a SaaS app where you just, you know, you have to control that entire sort of experience on behalf of others, or, you know, here's a data file and the FTP it to you or email it to you, or even just an API where it just call it to what is really more a, a true data as a service and what I would tell you is a platform as a service capability. And so these are our new concepts to some. They've been around in, I mean, Amazon has been around for a while now, uh, or AWS, right? The ultimate, you know, sort of paths to some extent. But the new platform as a service model, what I'm sort of doing to help us understand that at EagleView, and I'm playing this role in, in, in having sort of really been an outspoken advocate for shifting our business model substantially to these sort of next generation, what I call them delivery models, DAS and PaaS type plays. That is a really compelling story. 
and and the CEO of your company, if they're not familiar with that, when you start to talk to them about how that works, and you start to talk to them about the value of delivery model that that enables, and you start talking to them about how it moves you to the middle instead of a, as a periphery supplier, it moves you to the center. It gets people to do stuff with your stuff, either in you know directly or right there on top of what you've created. And really what you're doing is enabling them, you're the engine or the power behind what they are now doing. And so it's a force multiplier model. And that's a very interesting sort of evolution for a lot of companies that might not have operated that way in the past, but certainly have that opportunity today. And especially with the nature of cloud computing, uh, the availability of resource at a frankly on-demand and the sort of speed of the general internet, I think those are, if you ask me what, as an engineer, as a, as a, I'm a product strategy guy as a, and a business strategy guy, is you, if you ask me, where, how do you get an organization to kind of pivot? Well, that, that's, I spent about a year here at Eagle View and about nine months of it has been spent really helping the organization recognize what that, that, op- that next opportunity, what I call that pivot of the, the, the business model in the organization is from delivering reports or a file or even just a basic sort of automation API to get some data on a request to a far, far more engaging experience for developers and for entire organizations that want to leverage what you have and leverage it directly in an integrated fashion. Now, all of a sudden, you up the stack on, say, something like AWS, and you become that provider value, right? And so that's kind of this, the AWS model is the same. SageMaker is an example. I mean, you could have deployed all kinds of open source frameworks for running ML models and supporting your model stores and all this stuff to do AI work. Or you could just, I don't know, use SageMaker. And it's just out of the box. It's just naturally on Amazon and you're done. Like you don't have to go and deploy all this stuff on EC2 and source stuff in S3. You don't have to do all that stuff. It's, it's literally there for you. You can use it natively. So it's a model and it's just a pattern, right? Well, I think it's, a, it's an amazing concept, uh, and I think you're touching on some really important issues around what's going to be necessary for organizations to thrive in the next decade, right? And that's what I've always enjoyed about our conversations is you really are able to explain uh, not just what needs to happen, but how to get there from here, because it's easy to talk about what we're going to do next. It's a little hard to move things to that. Uh, so I really appreciate you spending the time explaining how you've had that impact on other organizations. I would love to keep going. I I got like 9 million more questions. Uh, I know uh, I've lost my notes from before. I, we brought that up at the beginning. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if we've got enough to talk about, but I want to still talk about robotics. I think it's such an important part, uh, AI, where you think it's going to go, not just in the fun, right? Um, but and no tugboats. Nobody's going to get that joke, but I'm going to put it out there. So, uh, Kevin, <laughs> yeah. I, I really okay. hope in the future uh, we could have you back on because honestly, I would love to continue this conversation. There's so much more. I think when we talk about what organizations, what organizations are going to succeed in the next decade, I, I think it's it's you, you've touched on so many of what I think are the critical characteristics of the value being a platform, connecting and renting instead of owning everything. Uh, where that used to be a primary thing, like we're going to own it all. And that's such a, such a speed bump to organizational success. And it's just, 
you touched on, I think, a, a, real, a lot of really important characteristics that I think people need to start thinking about as AI, as robotics, as some of these elements become a little bit more tangible, right? A little bit more uh, going to happen, not when it's going to happen or if. So, yeah, like I said, it's a it's, it's a lot of fun. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a, I'm a pattern guy, and patterns you basically when you go and you you see the same thing or or different things across, say, nine different industries, nine completely different leadership teams, nine different kinds of products, uh, or hundreds of different kinds of products with nine different completely different sort of approaches to go to market. You begin to see what initially looks like complete and utter independence from one another. And then as you kind of walk through your fourth or fifth one, you start looking back, you're like, I've seen this before. And so you begin to connect up the patterns and that helps you in all kinds of areas. So there's no substitute for experience. There's no substitute for sort of assessing and constantly assessing those patterns. So I'm a second order guy. I live live in the second order. Uh, And so what I see that's right in front of me, is is ultimately something I always use to sort of help me understand, you know, why uh, I'm a why guy. I'm an engineer, and so I, I constantly want to see that second order, and and that's kind of I think what also helps to see patterns and and helps you become a little more you know introspective on and I would say deductive versus say inductive. Meaning I work generally from what is that outcome that I think I really want to achieve? How realistic is it? How can I really get there? You know, experience tells you all of the dimensions you have to consider on that journey. And so I think there's no substitute for that. You can't teach that. Uh, You really ultimately have to experience it and you have to experience it in the right levels and you have to be attuned to it and you have to have others help you see, you know, those patterns. And I was very lucky in my life to have four or five folks that were infinitely more experienced than me, although my early career, I didn't think they were. They were. (laughs) Uh, well i think that's a whole other conversation we could have about being a troublemaker and uh oh there's plenty of that yeah Uh, i i see the pattern so (laughs) well kevin thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and to share your experience and your and your perspective we'd really love to have you come back on again i think we've still got a million more things to cover so happy to do it patrick yeah thanks kevin i appreciate it guys We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragonspears and produced by Dante32.